All right. So, uh, come to the last session of this retreat. So, we're going to wrap up uh, the last parts of the Potapada Sutta. And uh, so, it's a bit kind of, the last part here is a bit profound and kind of a bit theoretical. So, it's kind of a good way to end off, I think. <laughs> so, let's see what happens with, uh, with all of this. Uh, so, um, uh, where did we uh, end up? Gee, I'm not organized. That's <laughs> okay. Okay, so we uh, were looking at the various levels of uh, samadhi. Yeah, we were coming to the very end of the a noble Eightfold Path, and then going beyond the four jhanas into the immaterial realms. And uh, as we were doing this, uh, the uh, Buddha was saying, well, this is how you develop your perceptions. Yeah? Perceptions arise for a cause and a reason, not uh, without a cause and reason. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why we can practice this path, because this is how we change our outlook, how we look at the world in new ways. And this is kind of fundamental to the idea of developing your mind. Otherwise, it would be impossible to develop your mind. You'd be stuck in dukkha and suffering forever after. And uh, it's an important point because uh, it is easy to think that the way we are is the way we have to be. This is what the sense of self does to us. Yeah, this is me. This is what I am. And so we actually fail to recognize sometimes the extent to which we actually can change. We can become someone else and we can view the whole world in a different way. And it's important not to allow ourselves to be trapped by that feeling of me. This is the way I am. Can't be any different. Actually, you can. And sometimes it's surprising how much you can change, yeah? how much you can actually move from where you are. So again, this, I suppose, comes back to experience and to a degree of confidence in the, the word of the Buddha. So we have looked at the, uh, come up to the third immaterial attainment, and now we're going to see what happens beyond that. And this is where it gets very kind of interesting and very profound. And um, so uh, the Buddha says, he says that um, after this, he says, uh, Potapada, from the time a mendicant here takes responsibility for their own perception. They proceed from one stage to the next, gradually reaching the peak of perception. Peak of perception means when perception is at its most refined, yeah, the most kind of attractive, and most uh, come to the kind of highest point beyond which there is no further refinement or further improvement, if you like, in your perceptions. Yeah? Does everyone know where we are? Bottom of page six. Bottom of page six? Yeah? Okay. So, uh, yeah, you have reached a peak of perception. And then what happens when you have reached a peak? And this is what happens next. Standing on the peak of perception, they think intentionality is bad for me. It is better to be free of it. For if I were to intend and choose, these perceptions would cease in me and other coarser perceptions would arise. Why don't I neither make a choice nor form an intention. So here comes this idea that intention 
is bad, yeah, because intention always means movement of the mind. It means losing the states that you already have, going to something coarser. Uh, it is without intention that you reach the most peaceful and sublime states of mind. So intention actually is a problem. Huh? So the idea here is to end intention entirely, come for it to cease. Yeah, this is kind of what he, you, you come to that conclusion. After a while, this becomes kind of obvious when you see the peace of the mind, you see that all the movement of the mind is a negative, and so you want to end it all. So what happens when intention ends? <laughs> We've already been talking before about you know, in the jhana states there is no movement of the mind. And so the feeling is that in jhana there is no intention in the sense. But in the sense there is still a remnant of intention in the jhana states. And that intention is like a frozen kind of intention, where the mind is directed towards the, uh, that state, towards remaining in that state. And I remember many years ago, uh, when Ajahn Brahm was still kind of uh, taking a little bit more intellectual uh, <laughs> view of the Dhamma, and he had this beautiful simile about this. Uh, I remember we had Bhante Gunaratana was staying at a monastery, yeah, a very famous Buddhist monk, Bhante Gunaratana. He, he has been living in the United States for the past few decades. And uh, so he also, very many ways, very similar teachings to Ajahn Brahm, the importance of samadhi and all of these kind of things. And they were discussing this idea of intention within the jhana states. And Ajahn Brahm said it's like a when you have an archer, and you kind of you you uh, you draw back the bow and you kind of point the arrow towards the uh, you know towards the target or whatever, and that is like you are kind of choosing, yeah, you're using your will to target the arrow. But there comes a point when you let go, you let go of the string, yeah? and the moment you let go of the string, yeah, the arrow flies towards the target. Yeah? So it, at that point, it's like the choice or the intention of that arrow is frozen into the arrow. Yeah? The arrow cannot make any choices anymore. The intention is kind of part of that trajectory of the arrow. The arrow is still moving towards the target, yeah, but it cannot actually change that choice, that intention. That's a nice way of thinking about the intention in a jhana state. It's like it's frozen into that state. Yeah? You cannot change anything while you're in there, but it's kind of pointing towards going in the same direction at all times. So in this sense, you can say that there is a remnant of intention in these states. Yeah? And uh, so in, in, in other words, any kind of mental state will have some aspect of intention and will to it. And now the question is, can that be abandoned entirely? And if we abandon it entirely, what happens then? <laughs> what happens then? Gee, this is exciting, isn't it? <laughs> so... This, this is here, the, the words, the Pali words. Let me check them up. I think it's Abhi, Abhisancheteya. So it's, it's Chaitana, and it's also Abhisankaroti, I think. Let me just see if I can find them here. So these are basically synonymous words. Where are we? Okay. Yes, if you're really into Pali, Pali nerd, and you have to know the, the exact <laughs> terms, I know what I know exactly what you mean, Ananda. Abhisankaroti and Abhisanchateti. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but let me just let me, let me just bring it up anyway. But just be, to be to have it here.
Okay, so getting closer. <laughs> yeah, Abhisang, Abhisang Karoti is the um, is one, and the uh, other one is actually uh, Cheteti, just Cheteti, I think, yeah, which is the verbal form of Chetana. Chetana is intention. Huh? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Cheteti and Abhisankaroti are the two words. They are, and this is actually quite a nice... Right there, you see that they are synonyms because they're used together. Yeah? You neither Cheteti nor do Abhisankaroti. That means that they are basically the same meaning. So Sankara and Chetana are the same. Yeah. Okay, so um, what happens then? And uh, then what happens then? The Buddha says they neither make a choice nor form an intention. Those perceptions cease in them, and other coarser perceptions don't arise. They touch cessation. And that potapada is how the gradual cessation of perception is attained with awareness. So, um, yeah, so touching cessation here is just another word. Niroda is the Pali Yuri, so Nirodang Pusati. And this is just another way of saying, in other places, usually the word sanyavidaita niroda is used. And sanyavidaita niroda means the cessation of perception and feeling. Here it's just called niroda. It's basically the same thing. You touch niroda. You attain, you achieve niroda. You experience it, I suppose. Although there's no experience, but you have some feeling or sensation that you have touched these things. So this is... And then it says you do that with awareness. And the idea of awareness here just means that you're directing your mind in that direction. Yeah? I'm going to give up these things. And it is kind of an act of will to give up the will. Yeah? You decide, I'm going to give it up. And then the mind inclines towards that. And everything comes to cessation. And when perception ceases, everything ceases. Consciousness also ceases. And the reason is because you cannot have consciousness without perception. Yeah, perception, it what makes, allows you to know that anything is at all. Without perception, you have no idea of, of anything. You can't make out anything at all. The ability to know that there is consciousness comes from perception. Without perception, there is nothing. So the suttas actually say elsewhere that these three, these three qualities always exist together. Consciousness, perception, and feeling. Yeah, they always exist together. They cannot be separated apart from each other. So when you have the cessation of one, you also have the cessation of the other two. So there's nothing left over. Yeah? And this is said elsewhere in the suttas. There's a sutta called the Bahuvedana Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. means the many kinds of feelings, number 59. And it goes through the various kinds of happinesses. Yeah? One happiness more profound than the next one. It goes to, as we have seen here, the uh, sphere of nothingness, uh, then it goes to the sphere of, of neither perception nor non-perception, and then it goes to cessation, sanya, vidaita, niroda, and this is the highest happiness. Uh, and it's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, this is what is so strange about the Buddhist path. When everything comes to an end, uh, when you see the emptiness of everything, there's nothing remains, uh, that is the highest kind of happiness. Uh, and of course, that is precisely the highest happiness uh, because there is nothing here. Uh, yeah, something is worse than nothing here. So you want to get rid of anything so that nothing remains. That is the highest kind of happiness. And then when you emerge from this 
state afterwards, uh, something re-arises that appears to you as suffering here, because uh, nothing is better than something here. So uh, this is kind of here coming to the very end of Buddhist ideas, yeah? So this is kind of Buddhism at its most profound, if you like. And you can really only understand these things when you abandon the sense of self, because the sense of self stands in the way for really being able to appreciate these things. So, then the Buddha says, <laughs> he says, What do you think, Potapada? Have you ever heard of this before? <laughs> He's probably really kind of amazed at what's going on. No, sir. <laughs> this is how I understand what the Buddha said. From time to time, a mendicant here takes responsibility for their own perception. They proceed from one stage to the next, gradually reaching the peak of perception. Standing of the peak of perception, they think. Intentionality, in other words, willing, volition, is bad for me. It is better to be free of it. For if I were to intend and choose, these perceptions would cease in me, and other courses perception would arise. Why don't I neither make a choice nor form an intention? Those perceptions cease in them, and other coarser perceptions don't arise. They touch cessation. And that is how the gradual cessation of perception is attained with awareness. Awareness here is sampajana. Yeah? So you are literally, you, in other words, you, uh, you uh, know what, you know, you have a, you know what's going on. You have an idea what's happening here. You are directing yourself in that direction. That is right, Puttapada. And then, after attaining the highest kind of stages on the path in this way, now there is a discussion between Puttapada and the Buddha about perception, etc., etc. And it is in many ways quite an interesting discussion. It's a little bit theoretical, perhaps, but we'll go through it. We'll go through it fairly fast, because basically because we haven't got much time, so we'll just kind of go through it, and uh, then we'll see what comes out of it. And uh, if you come into the end of the retreat, if you have any questions as we go along, you're very welcome to ask as we go along. So uh, we'll just see, see how things go. So Potapada says, does the Buddha describe just one peak of perception or many? And the Buddha responds, I describe the peak of perception as both one and many. But sir, how do you describe it as one and as many? I describe the peak of perception according to the specific manner in which one touches cessation. That is how I describe the peak of perception as both one and many. So the idea seems to be that you can attain cessation in slightly different ways. Yeah, you can attain it maybe by just going through the samatha, calming the mind down. Maybe you can do it through, probably can do it through insight as well, yeah, by giving everything up, attaining cessation. So it's kind of different, slightly different avenues. And the, he then argues that, well, depending on how you approach it, that's considered then a slightly different way. Yeah? In that sense, it is many. But the result, the actual attainment itself, is the same regardless of the path that you choose to get there. Yeah. But sir, 
does perception arise first and knowledge afterwards? Or does knowledge arise first and perception afterwards? Or do they both arise at the same time? And the Buddha replies, perception arises first and knowledge afterwards. The arising of perception leads to the arising of knowledge. They understand my knowledge arose from a specific condition. Yeah, that is a way to understand how perception arises first and knowledge afterwards. That the arising of perception leads to the arising of knowledge. So um, the idea here is just that they are, you know, the mind has many different aspects. And the uh, insight, when you have an insight uh, yeah, into reality, it is just a perception that arises in the mind. It's like a seeing. You don't really know exactly what it is straight away. You need to kind of reflect on it when you come out afterwards to understand what happened. Yeah? So knowledge is just a more developed idea. But when you enter a state of samadhi, and then you come out afterwards and you see what has happened. That seeing is just a flash, it's a perception of reality. Then you come to uh, grasp what is going on later on. That's how I interpret this. I'm not 100% sure what this is, is meant, but it means something like that. That the sim simple things come first and then the more complex things arise out of that. Uh, and then from that knowledge and arises the idea of how to articulate these teachings so that they become accessible to others, yeah? And all of this, uh, kind of one stage after the other, gradually uh, <coughs> understanding the path. And then eventually you end up with a Tipitaka, 10,000 pages, yeah? That's kind of the outcome of that one perception. One perception leads to 10,000, kind of extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, anyway, so... Uh, then the conversation continues uh, with perceptions and the self. Sir, is perception a person's self or are perception and the self different things? Yeah, now we come back to this idea of the five khandhas and whether they are a self or not, perception being one of these five khandhas. And then the Buddha replies, but Potapada, do you believe in a self? I believe in a substantial self, sir, which is physical, made up of the four primary elements, and that consumes solid food. So basically, it's this kind of body, yeah. This is kind of the this is this is the self, yeah. This is real. This is seems a little bit naive to think of the body as kind of a self, but anyway, that's what he seems to be saying. So then the Buddha replies, "Well, suppose there were." such a substantial self, right, uh, Potapada. In that case, perception would be one thing and the self another. And here is a way to understand how perception is one thing and the self is something else. So long as that substantial body remains, still some perceptions arise in a person and other perceptions cease. That is the way to understand how perception and the supposed self are different things. Sorry? Okay. Sound is funny, is it? Is that better? Still bad? Okay, don't know what's happening. Okay. It's just crackling a bit, is it? Yeah. Okay, let's see if we can make it better. How is that? Better? Worse? Still crackling? Oh, Dukkha is always the... Um, 
How's that? No, still the same. Three. Is it touching my too far up? How is that? Better? No, still the same. Better? Better. Okay, better. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes you have to be satisfied with 70%. That's what Jean Brahm says. So <laughs> a few crackles is all right. <laughs> what else can you do? Okay. So what is going on here? And uh, so what is going on is this idea that something cannot be a self if it arises and passes away. Yeah? So regardless of how you regard the self, uh, in this case, because perceptions arise and perceptions cease, uh, they are not self. This is kind of the main point. So the body is one thing, he thinks of that as self, uh, and perception is something else. Uh, is it still crackling a bit? Yeah, okay. Not as bad as it was? Okay, so we just have to, we just have to deal with that. Uh. Um, so that's just kind of the point here, yeah? So, uh, in other words, the Buddha is making the argument that uh, perception is certainly not self. Uh, even if the body might be self, perception is not. Uh, that's really what it means. Uh. And then Potapada takes his stand on a different kind of self, yeah? Sir, I believe in a mind-made self, uh, which is complete in all its various parts, uh, not deficient in any faculty, yeah? So mind-made, made of mind. It's usually what this means, not made by mind, but made of mind. So it's a mind-made self, like a mind-made body, complete in all its various parts. And um, uh, what this means is simply that, uh, you know, probably what it means, it's not entirely clear, but what it probably means is that when you kind of extract the mind from the body, you have all the parts. Yeah, the parts of the body are still there in the mind-made body. You look pretty much the same whether you come out of the body or whether you are in the body. And complete... <coughs> what does it say? Not deficient in any faculty. Yeah? And uh, this seems, again, could very well mean that the idea is that when you extract uh, your a mind from the ordinary body, your faculties become much more powerful. Uh, yeah? As a human being, your faculties may not be kind of all that strong. You, maybe your hearing is a bit dodgy, your sight is a bit dodgy, and it's not all that clear. Uh, but very often when you extract the mind from the body, the power of the faculties increases enormously. Uh. Sometimes you hear about these people have these near-death experiences, uh, and they say that it's far more real than ordinary experience. Yeah? They say that if anything is a dream, it's human experience, and this kind of mind-main body, they are the real thing. Yeah? And this is, I think, maybe what is going on here. The faculties become very sharp. They're not limited by the um, physical body and the limitations of the physical body. It's kind of a direct mind experience uh, through these faculties. Uh. So he's taking it here a higher, he's kind of moving up the uh, kind of the um, hierarchy of samsaric existence, going up a few notches, yeah, to a higher level, so to speak. Yeah. And now he's taking a stand. That is the self. Uh. Then the Buddha replies, uh, suppose there were such a mind-made self, Potapada. In that case, perception would be one thing and the self another. Uh. And again, this is the way to understand that. So long as the mind-made self remains, still perceptions arise in a person and other perceptions cease. Yeah, in this way too, you understand how perception is one thing and this supposed self is something else. 
So again, making the same argument, perceptions arise, perceptions pass away, so they cannot be a self. That's really all it means. Uh, regardless of whatever else you take as a self, perception certainly is not. Uh, and then Potapada goes further. Sir, I believe in a non-physical self made entirely of perception. Suppose there were such a non-physical self, Potapada. In that case, perception would be one thing and the self another. Why is that? Because even in this case, some perceptions arise in a person and others cease. This is another way to understand how perception and the self are different things. So regardless of what claim you make of the self or who you are as a person, yeah, the way to understand whether perception is a self or not is just to look at perception itself. Does it arise? Does it pass away? Is there such a thing as a steady perception? No, there is no such thing. So in every case, regardless of what you take as yourself kind of in the broader the kind of broader landscape here, perception certainly cannot be a self because it's changing, it's moving around, always morphing from one thing to something else. So, um, so this is very much what we were talking about the other day about uh, contemplating perception as uh, during meditation to see how perception changes, uh, how some perceptions cease, yeah? especially when you enter deep samadhi and all of that. Uh, this is kind of what the Buddha is talking about here, yeah? that kind of insight. But sir, am I able to know whether perception is a person's self or whether perception and the self are different things? He's getting a bit frustrated, the old Potapada. Yeah. It is hard for you to understand this uh, since you have a different view, a different creed, a different preference, uh, a different practice, and a different tradition. Uh, yeah, and uh, here, of course, the reason why it is hard for him to understand this uh, is precisely because in most religions, including his teaching, there is an underlying assumption of a sense of self. Uh, and that underlying assumption of a sense of self causes you to see things that are not actually there. Uh, so it's very hard to break through. Uh, yeah, this is kind of what, uh, what this kind of is lurking behind the scenes here. And then Potapada says, well, if that is the case, sir, then is this right? <laughs> kind of changing the topic a little bit. Actually, not really changing the topic, but uh, it looks like it, right? The cosmos is eternal. This is the only truth. Anything else is wrong. Yeah, so now he's kind of moving on a little bit, and these... Uh, Things that we are talking about now, these are what are known as the ten unanswered questions in Buddhism, the avyakata dhamma. And uh, these seem to have been questions that were asked in general in ancient Buddhist societies. Yeah, if you were a spiritual teacher of any kind of uh, a stature at all, these you had kind of some opinion about these questions. Yeah, this is almost how you defined your religion or your teaching in terms of these kind of questions. So, everyone always asked about these questions. They would come to the Buddha many, many places, they would come to the Buddha and ask precisely these kind of questions. So, what does the Buddha say? And many of you will know already because you are used to these kind of things. So, this is what the Buddha answered. He says, This has not been declared by me, Puttapada. The Buddha has never said that the cosmos is eternal. Then is this right? The cosmos is not eternal. This is the only truth. Anything else is wrong. This too has not been declared by me, says the Buddha. 
Yeah, he doesn't say anything about eternal or not eternal. <laughs> then is this right? The cosmos is finite. That too has not been declared by me. The cosmos is infinite. That too has not been declared by, by me. The soul and the body are the same thing. That too has not been declared by me. The soul and the body are different things. That too has not been declared by me. A realized one, the Buddha, in other words, exists after death. That too has not been declared by me. The realized one does not exist after death. The realized one both exists and does not exist after death. The realized one neither exists nor does not exist after death. This is the only truth. Anything else is wrong here. This too has not been declared by me. <laughs> the Buddha is kind of going against all the conventions of ancient Indian society, not declaring anything here, kind of holding back. And then he asked the obvious question, well, why haven't these things been declared by the Buddha? Because they are not beneficial or relevant to the fundamentals of the spiritual life. They don't lead to disillusionment, dispassion, cessation, peace, insight, awakening, and extinguishment. That is why I haven't declared them. So, um, yeah, these things do not lead to these things. In fact, the whole point, of course, is not just that they don't lead to these things. The point is that they block access. Yeah, this is kind of the whole point here. So if you have these kind of views... Um, then you are basically stopped from achieving awakening because all of these views that we have here, in one way or another, they assume some kind of permanent essence yeah, in the world, within oneself, uh, wherever it might be, both in the world and in oneself. It is kind of obvious for the last four, the last four about does the Buddha exist after death? Well, the whole idea of existence is false, because existence, again, assumes this idea of something inherent that exists. Instead of existence, we have a flow of phenomena, changing things all the time, but not absolute existence. So for that reason, it is wrong to say exists, it's wrong to say not exists, wrong to say neither exist nor not exist, both exist and not exist, because the assumption that underlies the question happens to be wrong here. The soul and the body are the same. The soul and the body are different. Similar kind of problem, right? Because again, underlying assumption that something is there. The cosmos is eternal. Well, this is also a similar kind of thing. It may seem strange because it may seem that the cosmos has nothing to do with the self. But remember that everything in Buddhism comes back to the idea of experience. Yeah. So when you say that the cosmos is eternal, you're saying so, there's something in your experience that is eternal. It means that you are implying some kind of self again. Yeah? If you're saying it's not eternal, again, you're also implying a self, because not eternal means that there's something being destroyed somehow, something coming to an end. So all of these things imply a self in a certain way. Finite and infinite, again, they assume some kind of state of the world, yeah, it is always finite or always infinite or whatever, but actually it is just our perceptions, and our perceptions sometimes we perceive things to be infinite, like the infinity of consciousness or infinity of space, yeah, and when you have that perception at that point, it is infinite, but then you come out of that, you come back to the ordinary perception, then it's no longer infinite, 
These are just perceptions of reality. They don't actually say anything about the, anything apart from that. And they are changeable, moving from one to the other. No inherent essence in any of these things. So all of these things, they are based on certain underlying assumptions that actually block you from achieving real insight according to the Buddha's teachings. That's why the Buddha doesn't say it. Yeah? He says you can't get extinguished, you can't achieve awakening if you believe in these things. And then Potapada says, well then, what has been declared by the Buddha? <laughs> I have declared this. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the practice that leads to the cessation of suffering. Very pragmatic. Coming back to psychology, coming back to what it means to be human, coming back to what we're all trying to achieve. Yeah? The ending of suffering, the highest happiness. Yeah, that's what we're all trying to move towards. And that is where the Buddha is interested in. That's what he teaches. And why have these things been declared by the Buddha? Well, it should be obvious, I suppose, but anyway, because they are beneficial and relevant to the fundamentals of the spiritual life. They lead to disillusionment or uh, repulsion from the, from the world, dispassion, cessation, peace, insight, awakening, and extinguishment. That's why I have declared these things. And then he says... That is so true, blessed one. That is so true, holy one. <laughs> uh, please, sir, go at your convenience. Then the Buddha got up from his seat and left. Soon after the Buddha had left, those wanderers gave Potapada a comprehensive tongue lashing. No matter what the ascetic Gautama says, Potapada agrees with him. That's so true, blessed one. That's so true, holy one. We understand that the ascetic Gautama didn't make any definitive statement at all regarding whether the cosmos is eternal and so on. So they are really, they are, they are not all that impressed by the Buddha. Yeah? He didn't actually answer any of the questions that really matter. Yeah? These are the important things in the world. The Buddha didn't say anything about it. When they said this, Potapada said to them, I too understand that the ascetic Gautama didn't make any definitive statement at all regarding whether the cosmos is eternal and so on. Nevertheless, the practice that he describes is true, real and accurate. It is the regularity of natural principles, the invariance of natural principles. So how could a sensible person such as I not agree that what was well spoken by the ascetic Gautama was in fact well spoken? Yeah, this is uh, kind of nice, right? You are not holding on to your own ideas too much. You are open-minded and when you hear something that is true, well, you go with it. You don't kind of defend yourself to the death like people do on social media sometimes. And regardless of whether it's true or not, it kind of becomes a principle that uh, this is my opinion. I'm going to keep holding on to it regardless. Which is good, yeah? It's kind of, uh, this is exactly what we all have to do. If we adhere to things without really reflecting properly, you're never going to advance on the spiritual path. And it says here, it's the regularity of natural principles. It says the Dhamma Tittata and Dhamma Niyama, 
And uh, so these are like, he's just describing nature, describing the world. And of course, this is precisely what the Buddha is about. And this is one reason why, you know, often when we talk about whether Buddhism is a religion or not, well, if you are just describing natural principles, which really the Buddha is, is it a religion or is it just uh, nature? How do we sometimes, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, there isn't any clear distinction anymore between the idea of religion and just nature. And in some sense, the Buddhist teaching kind of, uh, it doesn't, it's not easily categorized into these kind of things in the same way as in the West where you have science on the one hand and you have then uh, you know, religion on the other hand. But Buddhism somehow crosses those boundaries a little bit uh, and it's very hard to say where it belongs. Uh, is it secular or not secular? The idea, some people say rebirth is kind of religious and secular means you don't believe in rebirth. But actually, why isn't rebirth secular? If it is true, if it is how the world works, then surely it is as secular as anything else. And this is kind of where Buddhism, in a sense, meets with kind of scientific principles. It's the search for truth. It's a search for reality. It is not a search for just something to hold on to for the sake of having some kind of, uh, you know, something nice to hold on to in the world. We want truth in Buddhism. So it's kind of an interesting thing, yeah? It is a natural principle that we're looking out for. And this is what he's saying here. They too are philosophers in a deeper sense of the word. Uh, it is not just about adhering to some doctrine which kind of is nice to adhere to, huh? Please, yeah. 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 Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly, exactly. So this is kind of, you see, exactly, you see many versions of this in the suttas, many different ways of expressing these things, yeah, even in this life, uh, there's nothing there, so how can anything be, de- be gone? Yeah, yeah. There's a the Yamaka Sutta in the, and the Sangyutta Nikai is famous for that uh, discussion about, you know, uh, there's this monk who says, oh, the Buddha is, you know, he, he, I, it's obvious, he, he, he doesn't exist after death, yeah, why not we just kind of uh, accept that, yeah, he's gone and he doesn't exist. Uh, and then there's a long discussion, but uh, if you can't even find the Buddha in this very life, uh, how can you say he ceases to, to exist afterwards? He never existed in the first place. This person never was never there. He was just, as you say, the five khandas. This is changing thing. There was no Buddha beforehand, so how can the Buddha not exist afterwards? It's a beautiful argument, and it's in the famous Yamaka Sutta, in the um, Sangyutta Nikaya, the Kanda Sangyutta, 22nd Sangyutta, Sutta number, which Sutta number is it now? 75 or 76, something like that. Somewhere in the 70s, I think, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so then uh, uh, the sutta goes on. We're running out of time, so I'm going to probably have to go a little bit faster. So I can speak really fast. I can warn you, I can really go super-duper speed. So just, uh, <laughs> Anyway, so this next chapter is called On Chitta Hatti Sariputta. Then, after two or three days had passed, Chitta Hatti Sariputta and Potapada went to the Buddha. Chitta Hatti Sariputta bowed and sat down to one side, but the wandering Potapada exchanged greetings with the Buddha. And when the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side. Potapada told the Buddha 
what had happened after he left. Yeah, about the wanderers being critical of the Buddha and all of that. And the Buddha said, all those wanderers, Potapada, are blind and sightless. You are the only one who sees. For I have taught and pointed out both things that are definitive and things that are not definitive. And then he repeats pretty much what he spoke, said before. So we can just skip that. Yeah. We have to be efficient now, use the time wisely. Um, then uh, on the next page, I think it is, or maybe not, uh, the next section, things that are definitive, third paragraph, uh, the Buddha says, there are some ascetics and Brahmins uh, who have this doctrine and view. The self is exclusively happy and is well after death. Yeah, this is uh, some kind of eternalist doctrine. I go up to them and say, is it really true that this is the venerable's view? And they say, yes. And I say to them, but do you meditate knowing and seeing an exclusively happy world? When asked this, they say, no. I say to them, but have you perceived an exclusively happy self for a single day or night, or even half a day or night? And they say, no. I say to them, but do you know a path and practice to realize an exclusively happy world? And they say, no. I say to them, but have you ever heard the voice of the deities reborn in an exclusively happy world saying, practice well, dear sirs, practice directly so as to realize an exclusively happy world. For this is how we practiced, practiced, and we were reborn in an exclusively happy world. Ask this, they say, no. What do you think, Potapada? This being so, doesn't what they say turn out to have no foundation, yeah, no demonstrable basis. Clearly, that is the case, sir. So they have all these ideas, they have these views, but without really having any foundation for their views. Yeah? And this is how the world often is. A lot of the doctrines and religions, things you hear about in the world, often don't have a proper foundation. They are traditions that we bring with us. Their ideas come from the past. And people believe it because other people believe it. Yeah? Very often you hear the argument, oh, but everyone believes in this, so you've got to believe in it. Well, usually if everyone believes in something, usually it's a good sign you should not believe in it. Yeah? Because the majority of people in the world are deluded. If there weren't, everyone would be enlightened. We would all be happy. There wouldn't be any problems. We wouldn't have any wars, anything like that. So the majority belief is, not, is no indication at all that something is true. So... Um, we base so many things in life on these very insecure foundations, on no foundations at all. And this is what the Buddha is pointing out here. So clearly that's the case, sir. Suppose, Potapada, a man were to say, whoever the finest lady in this land is, it is her that I want, her that I desire. They would say to him, Mr., that finest lady in the land who you desire, do you know whether she is an aristocrat, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker? Ask this, they would say, no. They'd say to him, Mr., that finest lady in the land who you desire, do you know her name and clan? Whether she's tall, short, or medium? Whether her skin is black, brown, or tawny? Whether what village, town, or city she comes from? Asked all of these things, they would say no. <laughs> so... 
they would say to him, Mister, do you desire someone you have never even known or seen? Ask this, they would say, yes. <laughs> what do you think, Potapada? That being so, doesn't that man's statement turn out to have no demonstrable basis, no foundation? Clearly, that is, sir. That, that is the case, sir. In the same way, the ascetics and Brahmins have the various doctrines of views, yeah? Again, it has no demonstrable basis. Suppose a man were to build a ladder at the crossroads for climbing up to a stilt longhouse or a stilt house. Stilt house are those houses on stilts that you often see in many Asian countries. They would say to him, Mister, that stilt house that you are building a ladder for, do you know whether it's to the north, the south, the east or the west? Whether it's tall, short or medium? Ask this, he would say no. And they would say to him, Mister, are you building a ladder for a stiltas you have never uh, even known or seen? Ask this, he would say yes. <laughs> what do you think, Potapada? That being so, doesn't that man's statement turn out to have no foundation? Clearly, that is the case, sir. In the same way, the ascetics and Brahmins have those various doctrines and views. Yeah? It has no demonstrable basis, no foundation. So you are building up these things yeah, without really knowing what you're doing. You're creating a path that you don't know where the path is going because you have no idea what, the res- what this result or the goal actually exists. And of course, this is exactly what the Buddha claims. He claims to have insight, to have seen these things and to teach based on that insight. So he's arguing there's a difference between his teaching and these other teachings. So now, the question then is, well, what exactly, you know, so we're going to go a little bit further into the idea of what the Buddha then teaches, at least from one point of view. And these are three kinds of reincarnation. Potapada, there are these three kinds of reincarnation. A substantial reincarnation, a mind-main reincarnation, and a non-physical reincarnation. This is similar to what we saw before, where the Potapada was talking about three kinds of self. Yeah? But the Buddha doesn't call it three kinds of self, he calls it three kinds of reincarnation. And that fits better with the Buddha's worldview. Yeah? So what is a substantial reincarnation? It is physical, made up the four, of the four primary elements, and consumes solid food. What is the mind-made reincarnation? It is physical, mind-made, complete in all its various parts, not deficient in any faculty. What is the non-physical reincarnation? It is non-physical, made of perception, just like we had before. I teach the Dhamma for the giving up of these three kinds of reincarnation. Yeah, they are not selves at all. They are just temporary states that you get reincarnated as, you get reborn as, and because they're all temporary, all impermanent, all unsatisfactory, ultimately, you want to give them up. When you practice accordingly, corrupting qualities will be given up in you, and cleansing qualities will grow. You will enter and remain in the fullness and abundance of wisdom, having realized it with your own insight in this very life. So the things that Potapada take to be a self in Buddhism, you're supposed to abandon. And when you abandon these things, then you reach the highest wisdom. Potapada, you might think, 
corrupting qualities will be given up and cleansing qualities will grow. One will enter and remain in the fullness and abundance of wisdom, having realized it with one's own insight in this very life. But such a life is suffering here. <laughs> in other words, gaining this wisdom is the suffering here. But you should not see it like this. Corrupting qualities will be given up and cleansing qualities will grow. One will enter and remain in the fullness and abundance of wisdom, having realized it with one's own insight in this very life. And there will only be joy and happiness, tranquility, mindfulness and awareness. Such a life is blissful. Seeing things according to reality, understanding the truth is a blissful thing. And we should really expect that because... Uh, otherwise, when we are deluded, we make wrong decisions. We don't know up from down. Seeing things according to reality allows us then to react to that reality that we see. So we should always expect wisdom and happiness to go hand in hand. Uh, and this is what the Buddha is saying here. Uh, if others should ask us, uh, but reverence, what is that substantial reincarnation? Uh, we would answer like this. Uh, this is that substantial reincarnation. If others should ask us, but reverend, what is that mind-made reincarnation? We would answer like this. This is that mind-made reincarnation. If others should ask us, but reverend, what is that non-physical reincarnation made of perception? We would answer like this. This is that non-physical reincarnation. So what does it... What, what exactly does this mean? And I think what it means is just that uh, right now, all of these reincarnations are available right now in one way. Yeah? You might be here and this might be a physical reincarnation, but you can actually access these things within. And this is what we do in samadhi. When you practice, you access the mind-made reincarnation. And in the very deep samadhi, when you go to the material realm, you actually also access those within. So these things are, in a sense, uh, available within us. And this is one of those things with uh, you know, the ideas of Buddhism, is that these inner states are mirrored in outer reincarnation. So you access a deep state of samadhi, and then you get reborn in accordance with that, if you keep practicing that samadhi to the point when you die. Yeah? And you can also, uh, the same thing with the, perception-made state, the immaterial realms, you access them now, and if your mind inclines towards those when you die, then you kind of get reborn there. So the inner states are mirrored in the outer world. Yeah? In the same way, you can have states that are very coarse, like almost like an animal realm, and then the inner states will then be mirrored in a rebirth, in a kind of very unpleasant state. So this is where I think what this, it is getting at. Well, uh, this is yeah, right here. We have access to these things. What do you think, Potapada? This being so, doesn't this statement turn out to have a demonstrable basis? Clearly, that's the case, sir. Yeah, you, we know because we access these things right now. We understand what these things are. Suppose a man were to build a ladder for climbing up a stilt house right underneath that house. They would say to him, Mr. That still task that you are building a ladder for, do you know whether it is to the north, south, east, and west, whether it is tall, short, or medium? And he would say, well, this here is that still house which I'm building the ladder right underneath it. What do you think, Potapada? That being so, wouldn't that have a demonstrable basis? Of course it would. 
when the Buddha had spoken, Chitta, Hatti Sariputta, this is the other fellow who has come with Potapada, Sir, while you are in a substantial reincarnation, are the mind-made and the non-physical reincarnation, are they fictitious and only the substantial reincarnation real? And while you are in the mind-made reincarnation, are the other two fictitious? And while you are in the non-physical reincarnation, are the other two fictitious? And the Buddha replies, while in the substantial reincarnation, it is not referred to as the other two. While you are in the mind-made reincarnation, it is not referred to as substantial and non-physical. And while in the non-physical reincarnation, it is not referred to as substantial or mind-made, only as a non-physical reincarnation. So, in other words, we refer to things depending on the state of reality. If you get reborn in a certain realm, you are referred to as an animal. If you're, referred to, uh, uh, if you're reborn as a human, you're called a human. If you're reborn in some kind of deva realm, you're referred to as a mind-made reality. Yeah? So it is just a temporary existence, and during that temporary existence, uh, this is what we refer, how we refer to things. That's really what the Buddha is saying. Yeah? It's kind of obvious in a sense, once you get what's going on here. Chitta, suppose they were to ask you, did you exist in the past? Will you exist in the future? Do you exist now? How would you respond? Sir, if they were to ask me this, I would answer like this. I existed in the past. I will exist in the future. I exist now. That's how I would answer. Fair enough. <laughs> but Chitta, suppose they were to ask you, is the reincarnation you had in the past your only real one? And those in the future and present, fictitious. Is the reincarnation you will have in the future your only real one, and the ones in the past and the present, fictitious? Is the reincarnation you have now your only real one, and those in the past and the future, fictitious? How would you answer? Sir, if they were to ask, ask me like this, I would answer like this. The reincarnation I had in the past was real at that time. And the same for the future and the present and the future fictitious. The reincarnation I will have in the future will be real at that time, and the other ones will be fictitious. Or maybe fictitious. I'm not sure fictitious is a. Anyway, I don't have time to go into the details, so we'll just forget about it. The, the reincarnation I have now is real at this time, and those in the past and the future fictitious. That's how I would answer. In the same way, while in any of these three incarnations, it is not referred as the other two, only under its own name. Yeah, so what is now is what we have now. What we have at another time is what we have at another time. From cow comes milk. From milk comes curd. From curd comes butter. From butter comes ghee. And from ghee comes the cream of ghee. And the cream of ghee is said to be the best of these. While it's milk, it's not referred to as curd, butter, ghee, or cream of ghee. It is only referred to as milk. While it's curd, or butter, or ghee, or cream of ghee, it is not referred to anything else, only under its own name. In the same way, while in any of these three reincarnations, it is not referred to as the other two, only under its own name. These are the world's usages, 
terms, expressions and descriptions which the realized one uses without misapprehending them. So the point here is just that none of these things are selves. Yeah? None of these things are real in a kind of final sense. They are temporary states of mind or temporary existences in a certain life or whatever, but they are just changing. And so you use the idea of a, a reincarnation in a certain place. It is a term. It's a use that we use. You are now reincarnated there without going beyond what actually is present. It has a certain time it is present, and then when you go somewhere else, it kind of fades into the background. It becomes like a dream, yeah? like we were talking about before. In a sense, it is fictitious in a certain way because it doesn't exist anymore. So we kind of this flow, we're this stream moving on in the world, and there's nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp onto in the stream. Just moving along, following the stream. And if we try to grasp on, which is what we do all the time, we're going counter to the nature of reality, which doesn't really allow you to grasp onto everything, and then we suffer as a consequence. We suffer because we're grasping at emptiness, grasping at something which is hollow, thinking there is something there. So this is why it is useful to see things as they actually are. So this is what this is basically going on here. So that is really the end of the sutta. Yeah, this is where it ends. And I'll just read out the last few paragraphs. They are just kind of, you know, the kind of niceties at the end. And actually, they're very nice. When he had spoken, the wanderer Potapada said to the Buddha, Excellent, sir, excellent. It is as if you were writing the overturned, revealing the hidden, pointing out the path to the lost, or lighting a lamp in the dark so that people with good eyes can see what's there. So to the Buddha has made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, to the teaching, and to the mendicant Sangha, but from this day forth, may the Buddha remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. It's a beautiful little passage, yeah, this idea of writing the overturned. Yeah, we have seen everything the wrong way. Actually, we need to turn things the right way up. Happiness turns out to be suffering. Suffering turns out to be happiness. What we thought was permanent actually is impermanent. Where we saw a self, it turns out to be non-self. We need to change our perceptions 180 degrees. Writing the overturned. Revealing the hidden. Yeah? We are ignorant. We don't really see what is there. There's the veil in the world. It is called in a certain suit as the world is veiled. Yeah? It is like we're in the fog. Everything is slightly dark. It is gray. We cannot see what's going on. One day the veil gets pulled back. And then, th- then we see reality. We get a clear insight into what is going on. Revealing the hidden. Pointing out the path to the lost. Yeah? One of those ideas in the suttas about being lost, wandering around in the world, not having any purpose, roaming around in samsara, going from one existence to another, moving around without any purpose or direction. It's the idea of being lost in the world. And then one day you come across this path and you start to get a direction. You're moving somewhere. Yeah, you come back to these retreats and hopefully every year it's going a little bit better. You go a little bit deeper in your meditation. Your mindfulness is a bit more powerful, a bit more alert than you were before. You have a better feeling within you. Yeah? And things are kind of heading in that direction. 
That is my experience on the Buddhist path. There is this movement in going somewhere. You're on a path. You're feeling you are on the most interesting, the most exciting, the most meaningful journey that is possible for a human being. Pointing out the path to the lost, lighting a lamp in the dark so that people with good eyes, the people with good eyes are the ones who have enough wisdom to understand what is going on. Yeah? Lamping a light in the dark. People are in the dark. They don't know what they're doing. That's why we should always forgive. That's why we should always have a sense of compassion for everyone. Everyone is kind of fumbling around, trying to find a way. And in the desperation because of suffering and all kinds of problems, they do stupid things. Never judge anyone. Never have contempt for anyone. Always have compassion. It is the only right way to deal with anyone in the whole world, including ourselves, because we too are fumbling a bit in the dark. So then he becomes a follower of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. But Chitta Hattisadi Buddha takes it one step further. He says to the Buddha, Excellent, sir, excellent. As if you were writing the overturned, revealing the hidden, pointing out the path to the lost, lighting a lamp in the dark, so people with good eyes can see what is there. So to the Buddha has made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Sir, may I receive the going forth and the ordination in the Buddha's presence. And Chitta Hattisariputta received the going forth and the ordination in the Buddha's presence. Not long after his ordination, Venerable Chitta Hattisariputta, living alone, withdrawn, diligent, keen and resolute, soon realized the supreme end of the spiritual path in this very life. He lived having achieved with his own insight the gold for which gentlemen <laughs> rightly go forth, or gentlewomen, I suppose, go forth from the lay life to homelessness. He understood rebirth has ended. The spiritual journey has been completed. What had to be done has been done. There is no return to any state of existence. And Venerable Chitta Hatti Sariputta became one of the perfected ones. The Arahant, that is the perfected one here. <laughs> so, there you are. Yeah, this is the famous Potapada Sutta. I have gone a little bit over time. Sometimes it's very hard to get these things exactly on time. But, uh, so let us uh, just wrap up. I'm going to take another two minutes just to wrap up a little bit. And uh, just to... Uh, encourage you to take these suttas with you and take them back and to contemplate the teachings of the Buddha and to remember the things that are really important in life. And uh, I always, at the end of every retreat, I like to remind people what really matters because there's so much information here, yeah? Sometimes people come out of the retreat more confused than when they enter the retreat. So what am I supposed to do? Yeah, there's just, wow, so much stuff going on. And so we need to kind of bring it together into something simple that we can remember and that we can actually practice. And this is what I do in my own life because if we try to remember all of this stuff, it gets too hard. And so... This is the question someone was asking the other day. Yeah? How do we practice these things? And really, there's only one thing that you need to remember. And that one thing is kindness. And if you can remember kindness in everything you do, in everything you say, in everything you think, 
yeah, day in, day out, moment after moment, then you're guaranteed you're going to make progress on this path. And you just have to investigate. Am I really being fully kind? Can I improve my kindness? What can I do better? And then as you do that, you will gradually start to uncover these things and you will be moving forward in this practice. But what is interesting is that we often forget. Yeah? I often ask people, can you remember one word? And everyone says, yes, absolutely sure of themselves. They can remember one word. But we can't remember one word. <laughs> That's kind of the point, right? We can when we are kind of reminded, but we lose these things in daily life. Yeah? When you're busy building something, yeah? and this happens in monastic life just as it happens in lay life, when we are busy doing things, we forget these basic things, because in the spur of the moment, other things seem so important, and we forget the things that really are the foundation for the spiritual path. So we need to make it solid. We need to make something that is kind of established powerfully in our mindfulness, something that is always there at the back of our mind. And this is one of the reasons why mindfulness is so important, because it reminds you of what you should be doing. When you lose your mindfulness, you lose your sense of priorities, you lose what matters in life. And this is one of the reasons why mindfulness in daily life actually is very important. It is not just a matter of being mindful, not as a matter of knowing what you're doing. It is to understand the purpose, understanding why, understanding the instructions. And the instructions really come down to the idea of being kind, kind to others, kind to yourself, kind to everyone. And then you're going to make progress. But also to remember this, not to forget it. It is always important to come back to these teachings, yeah? Come back to the Dhamma, never, never take too long a period without reading some suttas, without listening to a good Dhamma talk to re-inspire you, to bring you back to the path, yeah? to remind you of the importance of these things, because we need that constant encouragement. If we haven't got the constant encouragement, the world is always going in the opposite direction. And after a while, we get carried along with the stream of the world, uh, heading the wrong way, heading towards uh, you know, all the bad things, all the things that don't really get you anywhere. Uh, and then, of course, you're going to stagnate on the path. Uh, so come back to the Dhamma. This is one of those root things that you find in the suttas, uh, where the Buddha says that the foundation for everything uh, is listening to the noble ones. Uh, and the primary, main, noble person of everyone is, of course, the Buddha himself. Come back to these teachings, yeah? Allow yourself listen again and again and again. And as you listen to these teachings again and again and again, slowly, stage by stage by stage, you're moving in the right direction. And I always like this simile, which we mentioned already, but it's always so powerful, this particular simile, to my mind. And it's the simile of the rain on the mountaintop, yeah? And if it rains on the mountaintop, uh, gradually that water will collect, uh, and it will collect into little streams. Uh, and as the water collects into the little streams, uh, it kind of goes into the larger streams. Uh, and going from the larger streams, it collects into the little lakes. Uh, eventually the little lakes overflow, uh, goes into the larger, the small rivers. Uh, the small rivers go into the large lakes, uh, Eventually the large lakes overflow and they go into the large rivers, uh, like the Ganges, yeah, the enormous rivers of the world. Uh, and then eventually that large river goes all the way to the ocean uh, and it fills up the ocean. Uh, what is required for the ocean to fill up? 
what is required for the ocean to fill up is for the rain to the mountaintop to continue. If that rain continues on the mountaintop, eventually the mountain will become full. Not the mountain, the ocean will become full. <laughs> so that's all that's required. Yeah? Keep the rain going, keep the rain going. If the rain stops, then there is no chance for the ocean to become full. In exactly the same way, the rain on the mountaintop, it symbolizes listening to the teachings of the noble ones. If you keep on listening to these teachings again and again and again, the path develops by itself in exactly the same way as the water eventually reaches the ocean. So this is the foundation. This is the cause of everything else. And the rest is the result of just applying yourself. Because these teachings, as far as I'm concerned, they are the truth. When you listen to them, you recognize the truth in those teachings, you feel inspired, and you want to follow the path in the right way. So this is really, in my mind, yeah, what we all need to do uh, during everyday life and at all times. And as we do that, this path will happen as a consequence. All right, <laughs> very good. Uh, uh, Okay, so uh, I apologize for our marvelous volunteers for <laughs> going a little bit over time. Uh, let me just finish off by thanking everyone uh, and for thanking everyone for coming. Thanking my very good colleague, Venerable Akaliko, for being here. He's always an excellent companion. Thank the uh, Venerable Bikunis and nuns over there for coming along. It's wonderful to have the, both Sanghas here. Uh, and I also the very... Powerful work, as many people have mentioned already, I just want to mention it again, of uh, the retreat manager, uh, Lehar, and uh, uh, Christina, who runs this retreat center, and Scotty is there in the background as well, and everyone else who has helped out. Yeah? And uh, ultimately, it comes back to the Buddha himself, basically. And also to thank every one of you for coming here, for making it a good retreat. It is only as good as the participants. So, there we are. End of retreat, maybe we should just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha before we end it all off.